Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by Stefan Harding, author of Animate Earth and the recently released Gaia Alchemy. Stefan discusses Gaia theory, deep ecology, finding one's Gaia place, different ways of knowing, and meditating on the alchemical Azoth mandala. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, or subscribe to the YouTube channel if that is where you view this. Also hit that like button and notification bell. Your support is truly appreciated. Stefan holds a doctorate in behavioral ecology from the University of Oxford. He has been involved in ecological field research in Zimbabwe, Venezuela, and Costa Rica, where he was visiting professor in wildlife management at the National University. In 1990, Stefan became one of the founding members of Schumacher College, where he worked closely with James Lovelock, with whom he has maintained a long-lasting friendship and scientific collaboration. As a result of this, they were jointly appointed as founding chairholders of the Arnie Ness Chair in Global Justice and the Environment at the University of Oslo. Stefan led and lectured on the college's Master of Science Holistic Science for nearly two decades, teaching on the core models of the program, as well as on several short courses at the college. At Schumacher College, Stefan has taught alongside many of the world's leading ecological thinkers and activists, including Arnie Ness, Fritjof Capra, Brian Goodwin, Vandana Shiva, David Abram, James Lovelock, and Lynn Margulis. He is now Deep Ecology Research Fellow at Schumacher College, where his interests are the intersects between scientific ecology, especially Gaia theory, and the world of psyche and soul. Stefan, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you for inviting me. Nice to be with you. Yes, well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It is uh, quite an honor for me. Uh, I've admired your work for quite a while now and have found it to be very educational and inspirational. So I'm truly grateful for this opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. I I wanted to focus today on your latest publication, uh, Gaia Alchemy. But first, I thought we'd cover some basic ideas for any of my listeners who may not be familiar with the ideas or with your work. And these are also covered in your book, uh, Animate Earth. Uh, I see the seeds of Gaia alchemy uh, in Animate Earth. Uh, So I thought a good place to begin is to ask you to discuss the foundations of your work, which I believe is rooted in both Gaia theory and deep ecology. Mm-hmm. So for anyone who may not be familiar with these, can you explain what each of these are and how they are connected? Yeah. Thank you, Nick. That's a great question. Well, I'm a scientist by training. Uh, I'm a scientist in my very bones, I think. And so um, let's start with Gaia theory, which is a scientific idea originated by James Lovelock, who you've mentioned. Um, and it's a very revolutionary idea about the way our earth works and, and who our earth is because before lovelock in science the earth was thought of as a sort of ball of rock hurtling through space with just a few organisms on the surface you know more or less insignificant organisms after all the the earth is vast you know it's a massive thing and the biosphere is just a very thin smear on the surface of this huge rock hurtling through space and it was thought that the biosphere didn't really have much influence on the surface conditions on the planet And Lovelock turned that round and he said, no, the biosphere may be a thin sphere on the surface of the planet, but it has huge impacts on um, the the composition of the atmosphere, on uh, the water cycle, on the composition of the rocks. And what's more, these four components, the rocks, the atmosphere, the water, and the biosphere, they interact together through complex feedbacks, which we can, to some extent, understand scientifically. And when they do interact through these feedbacks, something quite remarkable happens, he suggests. We get what we call in science an emergent property. That's to say that something unexpected emerges from all these interactions between these four components. And that emergent property at the level of the Earth is the ability of the Earth as one whole, as almost like an organism, to regulate its surface conditions within the narrow limits that life can tolerate over vast spans of geological time. So the temperature is kept, 
within habitable uh, limits for life. Um, the water is kept on the planet. The rocks are kept right for life. Um, uh, and the atmosphere is com composition is kept right for life. So the idea in, uh, sorry, and he gave the name Gaia to this, this idea of a self-regulating earth. Um, from He got it from William Golding, the novelist and physicist. And of course, Gaia is the ancient uh, Greek's name for the divinity of the earth. Um, so I think it's very significant that he gave uh, a mythological name to his scientific theory of a self-regulating earth. And in doing that, he brought mythology into contact with science. And this brings us to deep ecology, because I think deep ecology is somehow connected with mythology. Deep, deep ecolo ecology is the, is the, it comes from science. Um, oikos, the household, logos, the rational study of. So you could say that Lovelock's Gaia theory is, is, is a branch of ecology at the planetary scale. Um, but that's just ecology. Now, Arnie Ness, who coined the term deep ecology, he put the term deep in front of ecology, suggesting there's something deeper than just the science when we think of the ecology of an ecosystem or indeed of our planet. Um, and this deeper aspect has to do with value, with how, how, we, how we feel well, the importance, the meaning, the, the purpose of an ecosystem, and in this case of the planet. And you see that connects with mythology because myths are about purpose. All mythological beings have purposes and they all want something, they're all after something. Um, and Gaia, of course, as a mythological being, wants life to flourish and, and wants to, uh, living beings to explore uh, themselves and their, the planet that they're part of. We don't really know what Gaia's uh, mythological purposes are, but it's something, it's good for us to align ourselves with those purposes. So um, you could say that um, deep ecology um, brings Gaia theory into connection with values, with the more mythological dimension of things, with spirituality, with intuition, with soul. Um, so when we put together, Arnie would say, values from, from um, the depths and ecology, from the science, we put together facts and values, which, by the way, were separated in our culture during the scientific revolution by Descartes and others. We, come, we, we develop an ecological wisdom, which he called an ecosophy. So what I've been trying to do in my work is combine these two things, you know, the scientific understanding of the earth as a living self-regulating organism like entity with the soulful mythological understanding of the earth, okay. which uh, comes from deep ecology. All right. Uh, and that is a nice summary, I think, of the work you're doing in Gaia Alchemy. Uh, I wanted to ask a couple of questions um, along these lines. Uh, one is that in Gaia theory, and you discuss this in both Animate Earth and Gaia Alchemy, uh, you refer to the Anima Mundi, uh, mm -hmm. which is the soul of the world. Mm -hmm. And it's this notion um, that I think is part of Gaia theory, please correct me if I'm wrong, that somehow mm -hmm. the earth is alive. Well, I have to be careful here. If we, if we talk about Gaia theory, we're really, really very much within the realm of mainstream science okay um so uh, we had a lot of debates about this kind of thing with lynn margulis and jim lovelock and other scientists in involved with gaia theory um and for example lynn margulis didn't like the idea that the earth was alive or was an organism hmm. for various technical reasons um she would say it's it's organism like or it's life like but it's not actually alive um i i go i do think the earth is alive but anima mundi, the soul of, of the world, as you say, is not something that's uh, it's kosher to, describe, to discuss in science. You know, if we were sitting around with a bunch of scientists, like I've done a lot, you know, earth system scientists, climate modelers, mathematical modelers who deal with uh, the planetary ecosystem, they, anima mundi would not be part of the scientific discussion at all. Right. I mean, in the bar afterwards, you know, after a few drinks, they might just about confess, looking over their shoulder, making sure no one's listening, um, that they might feel there is some kind of soul in, in the world, but they would never they would never come into the discussions of the science, you see. So th this is classic uh, split in our culture. It's as if we're schizophrenics. Mm. We feel the soul of things in our private lives, like the souls of our cats and our dogs 
and maybe the soul of the earth, but it, we can't let bring that into science. And what I'm trying to do is, is bring that into science without losing a jot of scientific rigor. In fact, the contrary, if we feel the earth, if we experience the earth as a soul, uh, as an anima mundi, soul of the earth, or the universe as a soul, how do, does that make our science a bit richer? Maybe we'll get some more interesting insights and ideas which we can describe scientifically. I suspect so, actually. So you see, anima mundi is not part of mainstream science. Okay, yeah, and this is, I think, what you refer to as re the resouling of science. Uh, That's right. And, and also uh, different ways of knowing uh, because mm -hmm. the scientific project is fairly lopsided. And I wanted to ask about this because when you were talking about how the earth was originally seen uh, before Lovelock developed Gaia theory, you said it was just seen as a ball of rock. Uh, and you also mentioned uh, Descartes and the uh, modern scientific endeavor. So I wanted to ask you, you know, how did we get here? How did we get to our thinking being so lopsided? Oh, that's a complicated question. Uh, uh, and I've only got a partial answer to it. But I think part of it has got to do with the split in Christianity, possibly. And that goes back even further. Let's go back even further. It seems to have something to do um, with what happened in the Neolithic period, when in old Europe, um, we had goddess cultures that really revered what we, who we now call Gaia, the earth, as a feminine deity. You know, they revered the soul in trees, in rocks, in streams. They could feel these, they could feel these soulful qualities in nature directly and spontaneously. Um, you could say that it's our, it's our birthright to feel the soul of nature, just like we need to eat and we need to breathe. So we also need to feel the soulfulness of nature to be healthy. So the idea is that these early Neolithic cultures in, in Europe, Southern Europe, and all the way up to where I am in Northern, in England, the goddess cultures, they're agricultural, but they were very much connected with nature. And there's very few weapons of war in these cultures, we find. There's lots of figurines of goddesses, you know. So we feel that they were, they were goddess, very peaceful goddess cultures. Now, the problem was that in, in the Eastern Euro Central European steppes, um, the ecology, ecological situation was much harsher for human beings. And there, um, they developed a sky god culture that saw the earth as somehow to be conquered with the help of this distant sky god. And these people became quite warlike. They developed weapons and they, um, some people think they, they became very good horsemen and they're very warlike. And they swept over um, the Neolithic cultures and just wiped them out pretty much because they were defenseless. And so the old goddess cultures were wiped out and were replaced by sky god culture. Um, and that's fundamentally the problem that we have been dominated by a sky god culture ever since those times. Unfortunately, Christianity took, took up that notion of a sky god culture. And then Christianity itself split into the Protestants and the Catholics. And round about the time of Descartes, there was a 30 years war between these two warring factions of Christianity, um, which led to tremendous bloodshed, particularly in Germany. I mean, millions of people were killed in these wars. And people like Descartes wanted to find a new, new form of certainty that didn't involve um, these religious conflicts, although they were all very religious. I mean, Descartes was a classic sky god believer, you know. So they thought that um, what would give us certainty is what we can count, what we can measure. Um, and they, they were all very religious. They still felt there was a god, but it was a sky god. It was a male god, a mathematician, you know, an engineer that set the world in motion like a clockwork, you know, wound up, created the clockwork of the world, set it going and let it go. But, but uh, as you know, Descartes told his followers that the earth, and in fact, every created thing on the, on the earth, including animals, were just machines, like clockworks. Even our body are, are clock, bodies are clockworks. You see, that comes directly from the sky god culture, uh, from those Neolithic times. Um, and so that's how Western science developed, and it gave us tremendous power over nature. For example, when, when uh, um, Descartes' followers cut open live dogs to see how the mechanisms worked inside you know, the, the body of the dog, which is meant to be a machine, and the dogs cried in pain. Descartes said, ignore the screams, they're merely the creakings of a machine. 
And we still see the human body as a machine these days. Even in modern science, it's still seen, we still see things very mechanistically, although things are gradually changing now. So I would take the story right back to the Neolithic and what happened there in, in, in that invasion of the sky of the Gaia, uh, the earth, sorry, the earth goddess people with the sky god people from the steppes of Europe. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be lecturing on that this evening, actually. Are you? Oh, good. <laughs> oh, That's yeah, good. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I teach <laughs> a, uh, a Near Eastern religion class, and I always take it back all the way to the Neolithic. Oh, so you, you agree with that then, do you? Uh, yeah, mostly, yeah. I mostly. have, yeah, yeah I, um, and this is more of a technical issue. I know that uh, Marija Gimbatas in her work, uh, and she's yeah. the one who talked about these invaders, I try to reconcile this. I know that she referred to them as the Kurgan people. Uh huh. And it seems to be very similar to the story that is told about India and the uh -huh. Neolithic culture and the Indus Valley civilization. Uh -huh. uh, but in that story, it's always the Aryans. You know, that was yes. the name for them. And I don't know yes. if the Aryans and the Kurgan are the same people. I see. Um, but um, I know that the uh, theory of the Aryans going into India as an invading force uh, oh. has largely been rejected in scholarship uh, now. I see. Um, but I think uh -huh. that um, it's pretty difficult to deny the basic assumptions that I think that the gods emerged out of agriculture and the agricultural experience and what was dominant mm -hmm. there was the idea mm -hmm. of a goddess a living goddess right right uh, and like you said the archaeology uh there's really no evidence of war uh implements mm -hmm. of war or anything mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. um so uh you know i always try to present it you know fairly balanced um uh, yeah. But I, I do lean towards that. Yes, there was this uh, ancient culture. And I don't think there's any denying that eventually we do get a sky god. Uh, yeah. So that split had to happen somewhere at some time. Yeah. 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 Well, there's, uh, there's apparently genetic evidence for this, in, at least in relation to Europe. I don't know about India. Mm. It, the people who came over here, uh, from, you know, the, the sky god people were called the Yamnaya people. Uh, and they, they were different, apparently, they were differently, different genetically to the Neolithic agriculturalists, to the, the goddess people. Mm. And they swept over uh, Western Europe, killed most of the men, um, fathered children with the women. And so apparently we all have a mixture of Yamnaya genes and Neolithic goddess genes. Mm. Um, so there's some, there's a, you know, that's good evidence. If, there's, if there really is a genetic basis for it, Mm -hmm. then that would be really good evidence for this story. And apparently there is. Mm. Um, so that it stems from that. If, if this is true, it's the whole problem stems from, from that. Right. And of course, the Amnaya themselves, you could say, well, why did they become so aggressive? Maybe because it was so difficult living on the steppes. Yeah, it was a very right. harsh environment. They couldn't right. do agriculture. They had to be herders. They had to move around. And they had to maybe protect their own uh, territories for grazing something like that might, might, might have been the case. Yeah. And that's how it was first presented to me. Uh, I think it was referred to as the hostile environment theory. Right. Um, yeah. And you can see that in various cultures is that when the land can't support the people, they tend to become pretty hostile. Um, that's and they right. have to yeah. go and search for ways of supporting themselves. That's right. I also, yeah. I also think a really good piece of evidence is most of our holidays seem to be based on these agricultural systems of mm -hmm. uh, growth and life mm -hmm. and then death and rebirth, uh, you know, pretty That's much every yeah. single one of our holidays. So I think that uh, itself is really good evidence of this sort of uh, agricultural goddess uh, tradition. Mm -hmm. I wanted to also ask you about these different ways of knowing uh, because you know, part of your project here is to incorporate these. Uh, and I've, one of the things I really appreciate in your work is there's this kind of contemplative aspect to it. Uh, and this mm. is in both uh, Animate Earth and uh, Gaia Alchemy. One of the features in both is 
you encourage us to find our Gaia place. Uh-huh. And I was wondering if you could discuss uh, the Gaia place uh, for a moment. Uh, what is mm-hmm. it? And why is it important in this work? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important because it takes you, or it takes me, I can only speak for myself, it takes me beyond my theoretical understanding. Um, for example, I've just spent a little time in my guy place this afternoon. Um, and I arrived full of thoughts, you know, and full of, full of my daily life. And I sat there and just settled myself and waited and waited and waited. And gradually, 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 I noticed how all those concerns started fading into the background. And how the trees and the stream and the plants, and it's quite a wild place I've got, started coming into the foreground and began to sort of communicate with me and speak with me and embrace me. And as if my my sense of self, which I have in my ordinary life, you know, which we need, we need our ego, don't we, to survive, to live, to organize things and to deal with be with our family. And that sort of started becoming semi-permeable, I noticed. And... It's as if um, something, my, something poured into me and something poured out of me, and there was a melding of, of something from me and something from nature coming together. There was a communication between the two, and I started feeling more and more comfortable, more and more at home, more and more intuitive. Mm-hmm. I started in, getting a sense of intuitive connection. It's very hard to put into words. My rational mind started to take a back seat. My sensor experience started to become stronger, so I started noticing little plants and the shapes of trees and the shapes of uh, plants growing up the trees. Uh, the bare branches, it's winter here now, so the bare branches, the color of the sky, the temperature, that's sensing. Intuition, I, I had just a feeling that there's uh, something very sentient about the forest and about these plants that had been waiting for me to welcome me again. If my feeling is the tremendous feeling of value and importance and sacredness of uh, my Gaia place and of the whole of Gaia. And my thinking can now come in because I have the scientific knowledge about how the earth is a self-regulating complex system. So the thinking can feel comfortable with all of this. And I can't do that in a room, you know, Mm. Um, with a human created uh, environment, no matter how beautiful it is, it's possible, but it's far better to do that in a Gaia place, in a sacred place, like a temple, a Gaia temple in nature. Mm. Although sometimes, you know, if it's really cold and wet, which it is here in the winter, I have a little guy place indoors. I have a, just a little table with some plants and I have a little in, little Indian tiger model made out of papier-mâché that I got in India. And I just put him there and I imagine I sit there and I see him coming out of the jungle. And those, little, those few plants become a jungle, you know, so then I need, my, I need imagination to make a guy place come alive um, indoors. When, when I'm... Uh, outside in nature, my Gaia place is as if the imagination comes from, from the Gaia place into me. Mm. It's much easier, but you can also do it indoors. So I think the Gaia place is a very, very important um, pra- well, not practice, or it's a very, a very important thing to have in your life. If you want to connect with Gaia, you, you, have, to, you have to have a Gaia place. Um, it's, it's as if, I think John Muir said, you know, I went out for a walk and I went outside uh, for a walk, but I realized I was going inside. So I like that idea that when I step through the door to go to my Gaia place, I'm going inside. And when I come back indoors, then I'm outside. You know, it's that kind of shift in perception that brings right. things alive much more, brings Gaia alive in, in, with, with these four ways of our uh, four ways of knowing. Yeah. Um, and I relate to that. I began a practice. Um, uh, I found my Gaia place and I liked something that you wrote in uh, Gaia alchemy, where uh, I believe he said, you know, how can you know if you found your Gaia place? And it's that you miss it if you can't visit it. Right. And um, I, uh, shortly after reading Animate Earth, I began this, um, I found a Gaia place and it's a, a canyon uh, next to adjacent to NASA's jet propulsion labs. Wow. And uh, I go every Friday and I can't go every day, uh, but I, I would if I could, but I go every uh-huh. Friday and I've started referring to it as the Friday office. Um, uh-huh. And uh, okay. whenever anyone wants me to do something on Friday, I'm like, no, I cannot do that. I have to go to my Gaia place. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it's been interesting to visit it and develop a relationship. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is definitely the case that if I can't go, I miss it. 
right. and, and I miss it desperately. Um, uh-huh. And one of the things I've discovered is that being able to observe the changes mm-hmm. and yeah. I've noticed mm-hmm. that the changes really resonated with me when I was reading Gaia alchemy, because it seems like there is this alchemical process going mm-hmm. on in the natural world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in short, um, and we'll get into the alchemy here. Um, I know there are a lot of different aspects, but uh, on a very simple basis, I was thinking in terms of the uh, solvay coagula, you know, mm-hmm. sort of the uh, separation and then bringing back together. Mm-hmm. And I noticed this, you know, we had a lot of rains uh, here. And when I finally was able to go back, the land had shifted. Mm-hmm. And I would see trees that had been, they're kind of starting to fall apart. And there's this separation. And I could also see having gone here over the past 10 years, how this has occurred. And there's this constant sort of separation and then a recombining mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. nature has within it, this alchemical process. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, uh, I've got two things I want to ask, uh, but since I was just talking about alchemy, let's talk about alchemy a minute. Um, mm-hmm. What is alchemy? I think most of my listeners may know what alchemy is, uh, but how, how do you describe alchemy? Um, well, I would say alchemy um, <clears throat> has helped me to understand <clears throat> the transformative processes, both within myself <clears throat> and within nature, within Gaia, within you know, the, the inside world of Gaia. And how the two are intimately connected, how there's a, it's as if um, the world, the world is organized according to certain principles, you know, and you could say there are chemical principles. So as you said, there's, there's separation, there's coming back together again, there's fermentation, there's, there's distillation, there's, you know, in the Azov mandala, which I use in Gaia Alchemy, there are seven operations like that. But I think the important thing for me about alchemy is that knowledge of those, um, say, seven operations is not something we humans have created. We've received that knowledge from the unconscious or from nature herself. So um, I think these alchemical images have their own life. They live in, I like, I'm very fond of Jungian psychology. So they they live in the unconscious and they, they come to us from the unconscious like dream images do. So we don't create them, but we interact with them. So alchemy, I think it's very important when one considers alchemy that one realizes that alchemical images, which one has to work with in alchemy, are, haven't been made by us. They've been maybe fixed by us or received by us, but they haven't been created by us. And that's the power of alchemy. You begin to realize that there's a wider psyche, which is so intelligent and so creative and, and really loves us so much in a way, wants to help us so much, the psyche of nature, that it gives us these images which we can work with. You could say this is the soul of Gaia, if you like, not, not the scientific side of Gaia, although of course they're connected, mm-hmm. um, but to the soulful aspect of Gaia or the anima mundi. So that's how I under- like to understand alchemy. It's not just a, yet another intellectual creation from the human ego. It, we receive alchemically understanding from nature herself. Right. Yeah, I interviewed a practicing alchemist a while back, and one of the things he commented on is he does the laboratory experiments. Oh, yeah. And it was based on uh, this sort of feedback loop. And if I remember correctly, he said that what immediate came, immediately came to mind to him was the uh, feedback in the atmosphere with the clouds and uh, mm-hmm. the waters of the earth. And, mm-hmm. uh, and one of my favorite bits in uh, animate earth, and you also mention it in um, Gaia alchemy is this process of, you know, um, this flow. And I love the, the, what was it? The cloud seeding, I think mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, with the bacterias. And so it seems to me that, like you said, it's just through the observation, these things came to the alchemist and they tried mm-hmm. to describe them symbolically, I think. Mm-hmm. Speaking of you, I think that one of the main ideas perhaps in the work here 
is that there is a connection between the inner world of the human and the outer world of Gaia, mm. uh, as within, so without. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, and I personally think it is, just looking at the state of Gaia right now mm. seems to signify that we're not very healthy. No, no, we can't be healthy unless Gaia is healthy. Um, this is one worrying thing about living in England. You know, England is one of the most ecologically destroyed countries in the world. It's terrible here. I mean, there's hardly any wild nature left. It's all just horrible fields, very badly treated, full of full of fertilizers. It's, it's, inc- it's really incredible. Our biodiversity is really disappearing really fast. And people yearn for little bits of wild nature, you know. So I think unless the whole planet um, is rewilded, well, of course, we need to grow our food. So we need to do that within a rewilded planet. And there are ways we can do that. It's not a problem to do that. But most of the planet needs to be rewilded. We can't be psychologically healthy. We have to see wild things. We have to see trees that are growing free. We need to feel an, a wild, if we live in a forest area, we need to feel the wild forest ecosystem being itself, producing itself from out of itself with incredible biodiversity, which we could never produce. Um, if we're if we're by the ocean, we need to go swimming with some goggles and look at, you know, the wild ecosystem of the ocean. Or the, if we're in the desert, it's the same. We have to have that for our well-being. And I, as I said earlier, I go even further. It's our it's our birthright to have that. And like we all know, we need to eat to to be healthy. We need shelter to be healthy. We need company of other humans to be healthy. And just as much as we need those things, we need wild Gaia. We need to be unfolded or living within wild Gaia in order to be psychologically healthy. It's a fundamental human need to have wild Gaia, access to wild Gaia. I'm not saying, of course, the whole planet should be wild because we need to have areas for growing our food and for making our houses. But we need to we need to have access to wild areas. Everybody does very close to where we live, even in cities. And it's possible to do that. How can alchemy help us in this healing process? Well, I mean, for me, the healing has been realizing that the alchemical operation, say, of the Azoth Mandala, which I write about in Gaia Alchemy, um, apply not just to myself psychologically and to my own psychological development, but just as much, as you said earlier, to to what's happening in Gaia, to the, the scientific Gaia, if you like, to the water cycle, the carbon cycle, to the development of ecosystems, um, the extinction of ecosystems, the natural extinction of ecosystems. So um, if I'm able to see the same processes going on in myself and at the same time going on in what we could call outer nature, um, then the the separation that I often felt between myself and the outer world, so-called, especially as a result of my scientific training, has tended to dissolve. And I've had moments when I've been able to see or experience Gaia, the ecology, my ecology, my the, the, the trees, the forests, the birds, um, as a greater self, which is revealing itself to me because I've been working with the alchemical processes, which we both share. So it's a, it's a, it's a separation and it's an entrance into a greater self. Um, you know, Jung talked about the self being at the center of the personality, which is beyond the ego. And, and Arnie Ness talked about the ecological self, which is beyond the ego as well. So I think Arnie's, Arnie Ness's ecological self and Jung's self are the same thing. And they both are Gaian. They come from nature. And for me, Gaia Alchemy, working with this Azoth Mandala particularly, has helped me to explore that domain and experience something of it for myself. And that's been tremendously healing. And that's why I wrote the book. I wanted to share that with... Uh, see if other people could get some benefit from that as well. Would the self for Jung and the ecological self for Ness, would that be equal to the philosopher's stone of the alchemist? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think they're all the same thing. And also, of course, it's a goal you never reach. Right. But just to have the notion that there is a goal or there is there is this um, self, there is, there is this ecological, there is this state of being, state of mind, which we, we may not have all the time, but 
and we may not reach, but we reach, we reach it. In, we have experiences of it from time to time. That would be the philosopher's stone. I mean, maybe there are some people who can live in that permanently. I think there probably are, you know, I mean, mm. there have been enlightened people we could mention like Buddha, mm. um, probably Jesus, you know, um, and various other great people like the Zen masters, maybe Muhammad, various other people who really discovered this in a big way. Mm. Um, but I'm not like that. I'm still at a very early <laughs> stage and I fall back into ego. And, and I, But I notice it because the alchemical process helps you to notice where you're going mm. and where mm -hmm. you are. Um, so, yes, I think the philosopher's stone is the same as the self and the ecological self. It's a lovely image, you see, that helps mm. you move in that direction. Yeah. What would the uh, philosopher's stone for Gaia be? Is Gaia herself. Oh, Gaia herself. Gaia herself is the philosopher's stone, I think. Well, okay. I don't want to say is categorically. You know, it's, it's a, I want to keep it more fluid and um, more like a potential possibility. Could it be that in some way, Gaia is the philosopher's stone? Mm. You know, the intact Gaia, the wild Gaia that we had mm. before our culture started destroying her. That's the philosopher's stone. Uh, and when we live within that beautiful, pristine Gaia, which we don't do anymore, but imagine we were able, we were able to restore and rewild and live in harmony or much better harmony with Gaia, which I think we know how to do. Then I think we would contribute to Gaia, to Gaia as a philosopher's stone. If I, I think she needs us to do that. That's the role of humans. You know, she needs us for some purpose. And I think she needs us for her own self-realization, for becoming as much of a philosopher's stone, a cosmic planetary philosopher's stone as she possibly can be. She needs this kind of consciousness. Would it be fair to say that Gaia also serves as something like the alchemical vessel for all of us? Yeah, that's another way of thinking about it. Gaia is the alchemical vessel, you could say, for self-realization um, of all, all the beings within her, including us. So she needs all of all of the beings within her, you know, particularly the microbial domain, as Lynn Margulis right. pointed out. Um, uh, and all, all the organisms are required, all the plants, all the animals, fungi, bacteria, protoptistics, the rocks, the atmosphere, all working together. That's the domain of the alchemical vessel. That's another way, a nice way of thinking about it. Gaia is an alchemical vessel floating through space, pursuing her own self-realization towards her own state as a philosopher's stone. And we're deeply part of that. And uh, I want to go back just a, a little bit to uh, clarify some things, uh, ask you to clarify them. Uh, and this mm -hmm. is in line with Jung and his, uh, I guess, their functions of thinking, perhaps, um, mm -hmm. Uh, and I know this is a huge part of your work, uh, and it gets to this idea that we are somehow lopsided, uh, but he has this sort of quaternity, right? Where you have thinking mm -hmm. and feeling, uh, mm -hmm. and they're sort of at opposite poles right. and uh, then there's intuition and sensation. Uh, and I want to yeah. make sure if I'm getting this correct, uh, mm -hmm. with how you think about it is that we need to incorporate these other things as these are the different ways of knowing. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, Jung says, and I've noticed in myself, you know, you have to check these things out for yourself, you know, like Buddha said, check it out for yourself. Don't just believe me. See if it works for you. And I, I've, Jungian psychology worked very well for me. I've noticed that I'm probably more of a thinking type being a scientist, probably, but although I'm not entirely a scientist, you know, which is why I've moved into this guy alchemy thing. But imagine, he says, we all have a dominant function. One of those four ways of knowing is dominant in us. And if you're a scientist, um, then thinking is going to be a dominant function. And then, so you won't be able to feel so well. Now, feeling um, is about how, you, how we value things. It's not about emotion. Emotion goes around all four of those functions. It's about value. Can I see the value in a tree? Can I see the value in a butterfly? Or do I just see a tree as something I can chop down and turn into money. That's a kind of valuation. Or do I see the intrinsic value of the tree? From that, that's a phrase from Arnines, intrinsic value. All life has intrinsic value. That's the deepest intuition in, in uh, deep ecology. All life has intrinsic value, irrespective of its usefulness to humans. That's, that's a feeling function statement. So 
if I'm a scientist, my feeling function will be very undeveloped. I've noticed that in scientists that I spend a lot of time with scientists. I notice that in them and in myself. So we have to develop, we scientists have to develop our feeling function. Uh, and it's difficult to do that directly. You have to do it with the two other auxiliary functions, either through intuition or your sensing or both. And then the aim is to develop uh, all four of them as much as you can you know, with the time you've got in, uh, in your life. You know, It's not easy, but it's, it's work. And the thing is, I've noticed in myself, when I do start to feel, really feel the value of things, when, when the feeling function opens up in me, wow, it's a whole new world. It's like a discovery of, whole new possibilities in, in life. It's the most wonderful thing. It's like a sense of liberation. It's like a whole new world opens up. I've had that experience quite a lot through feeling. Now, if you're a feeling person, you might one day discover thinking. You know, you might, you might read some, get some mathematical models of the earth system, or you might find a philosophical system that is carefully thought out and it's suddenly thinking opens things up for you. If you're an intuitive person, you might suddenly discover the, the sensory experience of the world and vice versa. And the idea is to become whole, to become Gaians, if you like, to really feel the living soul of Gaia, the anima mundi. We, we need to develop these four in ourselves. And finally, I think when we start to, to make that sort of effort, gentle effort, I think nature responds. She helps us. You know, the, the unconscious helps us. And we get dreams and we get synchronicities that begin to help us in that direction to, to become more whole. So we're not alone. The soul of nature, the anima mundi, actually helps us. This is what Jung discovered. And I, I've found it's true in my own life. There's no question about it. You know, I've, it really, it's really worked for me. It seems like this is going to require a new way of or a new method of scientific education. Yes. In order to achieve this. Yeah, but it's not that new. I mean, Goethe, um, you know, Wolf, Wolfgang von Goethe in Germany um, in the 18th century or so, he, he cultivated this um, with his approach to nature. You, you would, he would go to a plant and he would go to a plant like you would go to a sage, like a wise person, you know. Imagine you'd, you'd heard that, I don't know, Tagore was around in your neighborhood or Buddha or someone like that, you'd you know, be rush. I'd rush there like mad, wouldn't, wouldn't you? And just want to <laughs> listen to them and learn from them. He would say a plant is like a sage. So you go to the plant. It's not an object like we think of in science. We go to the plant like we listen, we learn from the sage that is the plant. And we, we open our, our sensing, our feeling and our intuition. We put our thinking to one side. And he has ways of doing this. You draw the leaf sequences from the ground up the plant. And you really look at the plant. You draw what you see. You close your eyes, you visualize the coming into being of the plant from the leaves at the, near the ground up to the flowers. And by visualizing that flow in time from one plant, one leaf to another up the stem, you, if, you're, if you're lucky, you get, you get a, a blessing, which is the perception of the living being of the plant. Now, this all sounds like nonsense from the point of view of thinking. You know, thinking says, oh, what a load of nonsense. I mean, the plant is a set of interacting biochemical feedbacks produced by natural selection. Well, it is that, but it's not only that. It's much more than that. It has a soul. A plant has, like Aristotle said, you know, we need to go back to Aristotle and Goethe, really. So what I'm saying is that we don't have to start from scratch. We have this kind of science already in our culture. Within our own culture, we have that kind of science. It's just that we're not taught like that. When I was being trained as a scientist from an early age, I never heard of Goethe. Mm. Uh, you know, I was never told to sit with a plant. I mean, the, the little children do that. They go and they're told to spend time with nature and they love it. But after primary school, it's, that's all gone and you've got to pass your exams and you enter the mechanistic world. So I think we have that kind of science already. It's there. It's in Aristotle. It's in Goethe. It's in Humboldt, one of Goethe's um, friends and disciples. Um, it's even in Darwin, even Darwin had that feeling and Wallace, you know, so it's very much part of our science. It just has been pushed into the background, this more feelingful, more intuitive sensory approach to nature. And what we're trying to do in holistic science at Schumacher College, which I've been involved with, is to, is to bring that back and combine it with um, great thinking from science, with complexity theory, for example, systems thinking from Fritjof Capra, um, Brian Goodwin, James Lovelock. Lynn, Lynn Margulis, Stuart Kaufman, we are tremendous thinkers who give us the kind of thinking that's consistent 
with seeing the earth and the world and the whole of nature as a great living soul. And I think the alchemical process can help that and can, uh, can accelerate that development in ourselves. Okay, uh, wonderful. Thank you for that. And, and I think it's important for people to understand that this is not in any way a rejection mm. of traditional mm. kind of science, but it is in addition to, uh, it's yeah. a fuller kind of science. Yeah, right? it is. Science is absolutely fantastic. And remember, I'm a scientist. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, think of what we know about the universe. There's the James Webb telescope just getting red, limbering up. You know, but in June, we're going to have some amazing information about the, you know, the very early life of the universe. It's going to be amazing to have that information. And we know, what we know about the universe and about biology and about physics is absolutely fantastic. The trouble is, astronomers talk about celestial objects. Mm. They're not objects, they're subjects. Mm-hmm. It's what I like about um, alchemy. The planets are sort of subjective beings. They have psyches, at least, at least, at least symbolically. So if we can just bring ourselves to see, let's say, the planets, not as objects or dead balls of rock, which, I mean, they are balls of rock, but they're also more than that. You know, they also have a symbolic meaning as well. Why can't we do both together? Why can't we be poetic about the planets and scientific about the planets? I would go even further. You know, Isaac Newton was a great alchemist. Mm. And he's considered one of the greatest scientists of all time, which he was. I, I think that he got his deep, uh, his ideas about gravity and everything else, uh, you know, revolutionary ideas from, because he was an alchemist, hmm. because he was an alchemist, he was open to receiving those ideas from the depths of nature, from the anima mundi, from the unconscious. If he hadn't been an alchemist, I think he wouldn't, or I feel he wouldn't have received those ideas. So, Alchemical work as a scientist makes you a better scientist because you're better able to receive ideas. Another great scientist who, who works in this vein is Rupert Sheldrake, who's a friend of mine and has taught at the college, and his son Merlin Sheldrake. Also, you know, they're very good examples of scientists who are very integrated in this way. What's the, um, how is the scientific field or the uh, collection of scientists. I'm not sure how to phrase this, uh, but how are yeah. they responding? I know that Sheldrake had some issues early on where there was a lot of rejection of his work. I find what he does incredibly valuable. Uh, do you see traditional science opening up more uh, to these kinds of ideas and ways of doing science? Slowly, slowly, slowly. I think the old guard, you know, um, are still very resistant. There's this famous saying, you've probably heard it, that in order for science to adva- uh, advance, you have to wait for the old guard to retire mm. or die, you know, I'm afraid. And mm. um, so we're, well, that's what we have to do. And we have to wait. I know quite a few young scientists, I mean, very high caliber young scientists who have no problems at all integrating these four functions within themselves and feeling the soulfulness of nature and being very quantitative and scientific at the same time. There's no, no conflict at all. And about Rupert, I think what I like about Rupert is that he's a real experimentalist, you know, so he, he's thought of some brilliant experiments that can show that there is a soulfulness in nature. Uh, but that's another thing. We don't want to go much into Rupert's work, but I, right, I, do, right, right. I do admire him because he's a, he's, he thinks of tremendous experiments. He's an ex- mm-hmm. a very clever experimentalist. I wanted to ask uh, a couple more questions. I know that we're uh, getting close to um, our time limit here. Uh, but you've mentioned the, uh, please correct my pronunciation. If I get this wrong again, the Azoth, the Azoth mandala. I call I pronounce it Azoth, but you can do it how you like. Yeah. Yeah. The Azoth mandala. Uh, I can post a picture of that on the YouTube video here, but I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that and why that's important for you or how it helps you, uh, in this, uh, Gaia alchemy. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, as I said earlier, I consider that it's come from the depths of nature, from the unconscious, been given to us as a gift from nature herself. We haven't created it. We've received it, like I said before. And it's fairly simple, you know. I mean, it's only got seven steps in it, seven rays, seven steps in a circle. So the point is that the whole of nature goes through these seven stages, as you mentioned as well earlier on. And it could go round and round. So both psychologically and in nature, we see these seven steps. So the first one you could say is calcination, a kind of burning, burning off. And we need to do that with ourselves. We need to burn off our, our resistances in our ego. You know, we need to burn that off. And in nature, obviously, 
calcination is everywhere. It's metabolism, it's wildfires, it's plate tectonics. It's when the earth was first formed through the accretion of little bits of rock that then melted. So there's, there's, you can see calcination everywhere. Then there's uh, dissolution, dissolving. And in the history of Gaia, that's when the water arrived on the planet, probably from ice meteors, from the asteroid belt and from the inner earth. And that started dissolving the crust of the very early earth. And it released certain chemicals. Um, this is a kind of separation. So once you dissolve psychologically, um, you notice these, these, there's a kind of separation, a relaxed separation of elements that you hadn't been aware of. And in the earth, the early earth, it's these chemicals, car, um, basic amino acids and um, very simple carbohydrates sort of forming themselves from what's been dissolved out of the rock by the water. And then there's, there's, um, that's, that's a sort of separation. Then there's a conjunction where these things come together in the earth. It's the, you could say it's the first uh, proteins, the first complex carbohydrate molecules in ourselves. This, uh, it's a sense of um, things coming together in a new way a new possibility of life that the planet is the sun here, you know, so it's a kind of lighting up, but that's not enough. Then we go into fermentation. That's the next ray of the Azoth Mandala fermentation. And that I think is when food webs are created in the earth In the early earth are microbial food webs. And it literally is fermentation, dead bodies of photosynthetic bacteria on the surface of the ocean sink to the sediments and other bacteria ferment them and release carbon dioxide and methane back to the atmosphere which stops the earth from freezing and in ourselves we feel this what's come in the conjunction then we need to ferment it and let it come up with a new spirit a new understanding a new insight and then we distill it and in the earth that's the next ray the distillation and in the earth history of the earth distillation is when the ecosystems and ecological communities refine their connections and become much better at being e ecosystems and ecological communities and they're better at regulating the whole earth becomes better at regulating her surface in a Gaian sort of way and finally there's conjunction conjunction is in ourselves is this moment of really realizing that we are really deep inside Gaia it's an ex experience I call it being Gaia you know experience of being Gaia it's very hard to describe in the earth I think it's when when the whole planet comes together I think just before we started destroying our wild ecology the earth had reached a nice phase of coagulation and then we start again you know we, we we have to sort of burn all that and go around the whole system again and that's just part of it because there are various other aspects of the image we haven't got time to go into right um but there are there are some words that go with it which go around which go around with this mandala which i rather like which is visita interiore terra rectificando rectificando invenies occultum lapidem it's nice to, to contemplate that. So visit the interior of the earth. That's to say, hmm. visit the interiority of things, of, of yourself and of nature, and of Gaia. Visit it. Rectificando. Then you'll notice you start putting things straight. You're, 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 you start realizing things about your own life that you need to put straight. You're maybe, in my case, you know, things I haven't done so well in my life or people haven't treated so well. Um, also, how one maybe hasn't treated the planet so well and then rectificando in venes you will discover the secret stone uh, which is the philosopher's stone and the symbol for that is a young hermaphrodite child coming out of the earth and then on either side of the mandala we have the masculine solar energy the intellect if you like and the, on the other side of the feminine lunar energy the connection with the unconscious it's a beautiful integrated symbol in the middle is the face of the alchemist it's a man it should really be a woman but anyway it's a man um, with the downward pointing triangles, you know, symbolizing the self, the, the experience of the self. So it's terribly deep, you know, you can spend, well, I'd like to spend the rest of my life contemplating that symbol of the Azoth Mandala, and you can never, never get to the end of it. It's incredibly deep, incredibly nourishing. Yeah, I really appreciated the, uh, your, uh, the writings in the book on it, and I liked how uh, you also addressed how Newton had a version of it. Um, yes. and I just found all of this alchemical symbolism to be in the way you present it to be so enriching and so necessary for our current moment. And speaking of that, I wanted to ask you, are you hopeful? Uh, well, um, <laughs> not particularly, I must say, um, well, yes and no. I mean, 
I try to follow the Bhagavad Gita, you know, the teaching from the Bhagavad Gita, which is you just do what you can in the face of a difficult situation without being too attached to the fruits of the outcome. Mm. I mean, to, sorry, to the fruits of your mm. actions. I mean, your pardon. So you don't get too attached. You just do what you can. So I wrote that book and I wrote Animate Earth and I, I teach at Schumacher and I, I do what I can. Mm. You know, do a nice conversation with you, which I'm really enjoying. Oh, thank you. So we do, we do that, you know, and what else can I do? That's all I can do. Um, I can't go out. Some people can can go and protest, or some people. But I, and then you just let go of the um, any thought of an outcome. Am I hopeful? Well, if I if I if I have to think that way, I mean, can you imagine the shifting consciousness that's going to be required on such a massive scale, mm. and very very quickly? Mm. I don't know. I can't see it happening, but of course it's possible. Mm. And again. We do what we can, and we hope that it's going to have some some effect. So, but I suppose I that's all. I, I just want to leave it there. I don't want to say okay. whether it's likely or unlikely. Right, right, I just right. do what I can in my life, and that, yeah. I've just been able to do these things, these things, write these books, and teach mm -hmm. at Schumacher College. Let's hope it works, and yeah. let's hope it's made a contribution. Right. Well, I think that's fair, and I think that you know, I, I think that what you're saying in your work in general is so important in that I know that a lot of people think in terms of, for example, climate change, that we will have a technological resolution to it, that somehow mm -hmm. technology will save us. And mm -hmm. I think that it may help us, but mm -hmm. if we don't fix the inner that's reflected mm -hmm. in the outer, mm -hmm. the technology is never going to resolve mm -hmm. these issues, yeah. um, that it's still that lopsided thinking. I agree with you. That's. I think we need an inner transformation. Mm -hmm. We need to fall in love outwards with the earth, with Gaia. Mm -hmm. And I think alchemy can help us do that. And not just alchemy, there are other ways of doing it. But now I found alchemy very helpful for me. So we need to fix our inner situation. We, we need to become Gaians. Mm. We need to have that, that. We need to have experiences of Gaia. Um, and that's not easy for us Westerners. You know, we're so hooked into our phones and into the technology and into thinking, thinking. And the mechanistic worldview is so powerful in all of us and so unconscious in most of us. Mm -hmm. So, but we have to work away at um, softening that, at dissolving it. Cal we have to calcine it, first of all, and dissolve it and take it through those seven stages of the Azov Mandala. Can, can we do it? I think we can. And then, of course, technology is incredibly important. We've got the technologies we need, more, more or less. Not all of them, but we, we know what we need to do. There's a new book by David Attenborough, you know, who I think is really wonderful. Um, his, it's his witness statement, A Life on, a, on Our Planet, I think it's called. And he, he outlines what we need to do really, really very well and very, in a very easy to understand way. I'd recommend that book. I'm really enjoying it. He's a real guy and he's already got that, that, that sensitivity, you know. And maybe people like him can inspire us very much to, to do this kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I think it's... Every individual, I think that, you know, like you said, that you do what you can. And I think we mm. all need to do what we can in our own ways, but it also requires working on ourselves. It's not just yeah. working on the planet, but it's working on ourselves because we are part right. of Gaia. I was, maybe this is unfair, but I, I did want to ask this final question. I asked this to someone else. Um, you wrote in the book uh, about the coronavirus. And uh, that you said that it is reminding us how to live within Gaia's limits. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that. Um, and I saw that at the very beginning stages, mm -hmm. you know, you said that, you know, it's telling us that we need to slow down. We need to consume less and mm -hmm. connect more with each other. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how you see this now from where it was when you wrote that. Yes. Well, uh, the coronavirus is obviously not going to go away. Mm. Uh, are we learning the lesson from it? I don't think so. Right. I'm afraid to say not on a not on a mainstream scale. No, we just want to we want to get rid of it. And well, we're right to want to do that, of course. Right. Um, we just want to get back to life as it was before. You know, consuming, 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 consuming. We don't think of it as ah, this is a feedback from Gaia. Mm -hmm. This is a classic guy and feedback from a from a purely scientific point of view. This is what happens to animal populations that, that get too large. There are the, the whole system 
feeds back on that population to regulate its numbers through disease, through predation, etc., through lack of food. This is a classic guy and feedback. We've got too numerous and we've had too much of an impact. We've made too much contact with wild animals that carry these viruses because we've destroyed the wild habitat so much. It's a classic Gaian feedback. So it's a great opportunity to, to teach people Gaia, you know. If you behave badly towards Gaia, this is what happens. We get this kind of feedback. And I think this isn't the end. If we carry on destroying wild habitats like this, we, there's going to be other viruses. In a way, we've been quite lucky with this one because we have been able to find vaccines. Imagine if it was something like AIDS, the AIDS virus, which has been incredibly difficult to deal with. Um, but it's difficult to catch it. But imagine you had another virus that was as serious as AIDS, uh, but which was e easy to, to catch. We'd be in real trouble. And there will be others in the future. There's no doubt about it, I think. Right. So I don't see that we've learned that lesson. I think we want to get back to consumption as usual. So the mainstream culture has not learned the lesson that we have to, it's a lesson from God. Actually, she's been very kind in a way to give us a virus that we can more or less deal with because we have more, we can more or less deal with it. You know, it's mm -hmm. going to be around. It's going to kill a lot of us, but we, we've got vaccines and we, we can more or less manage it to some extent, even though it won't go away. So in that sense, she, Guy has been very kind to us. We could, she could have given us a much worse virus that we couldn't deal with. And it's a, I, th I think it's a shot across our bows, you know, like humanity, please learn the lesson. And of course, we're not learning the lesson, just like the wildfires in California, another shot across the bow. We're not learning the lesson. Right. No, I agree. And when the coronavirus, coronavirus first hit, that was <laughs> my initial thought was this is a warning from our mother. Exactly. Uh, and I think that, you know, Gaia is loving and nurturing but there is also a ferocious aspect to the mother um, and I mean, she's going to correct us at some point. And I think she's yeah. trying to do that now. Exactly. Yeah. We, we mustn't think that mother nature is all cuddly and friendly. I mean, she, right. she's good to those who obey her rules mm -hmm. and we know what those rules are now by now from our science, although we didn't need science to find that and the indigenous cultures didn't need science right. to know what the rules were. But we need science. We know what the rules are. But if she don't obey the rules, her rules, then she becomes ferocious. She can't help herself. That's, that's what she's like, a, a lion mother, a lioness, you know, with her cubs. You know, if the cubs misbehave, she gives them a whack around the face or the <laughs> ear or something. Um, yeah. Although Gaia's fiercer than that because she can actually wipe out. She can wipe. She could. I don't think she can wipe us out, but she can wipe out our civilization for sure. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she will hesitate to do so. No. Uh, um, so I, I know that we are at the end of our time. So I wanted yeah. to uh, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to speak with you. And I was wondering if uh, there's any place where people can go to find out more about you and your work. Well, I haven't got a website, you see, because I tend not to, I mean, I use computers, but I, mm. I tend not to like to spend too long on computers. So I mean, there's there's a Schumacher College website, okay, where yeah, there's I a little was... bio of me, but I haven't got a website, okay. So, but you can, people can look on YouTube. I've done various interviews, like the yeah. one we've done together. Yeah, they can look on YouTube, or uh, so that's that's all I've got. I'm afraid I oh, probably that's... should have more, shouldn't I? Um, you know. <laughs> oh, oh, I know. There's another thing you could look at. There's something that my friend David Abram, the great American eco philosopher. He's created something called the Alliance for Wild Ethic, Ethics, or AWE, Alliance for Wild Ethics. And he's got a lovely website. Mostly it's his essays, which I think are fantastic. But there's also right. some, a few things from me mm -hmm. and from two of our Norwegian colleagues and brothers, okay. Per Espen Stockness and Per Ingvar Hockland. Mm. So I've got some things there that people could find. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll post a link to that. Um, I saw yeah. David Abrams speak uh, several years ago. Uh, yeah. he, he's also uh, quite an inspiration. Yeah, uh, and I'll, yeah. I'll also put a link to Schumacher College. Thank you. That would be um, great. If you could put a link to um, Schumacher College, that would be great. Yeah, I, I feel that as an educator myself, that we need more places like Schumacher. I know that mm. the school I did my uh, graduate work at the California Institute of Integral Studies, 
yeah. shares uh, a spirit yeah. with Schumacher and some Very of our nice. faculty have uh, taught there. So yeah, um, like Sean Kelly. Yes, Sean Kelly. Mine. Yeah. And Brian Swim. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. and they're both absolutely wonderful. And Rick Tarnas also taught right. here many years yeah. ago. I and mean, they're incredible. Yeah, CIS is fantastic. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I wish that more uh, educational institutions followed the lead of uh, Schumacher and CIS. I think yeah. it's desperately needed right now. It is. It really is desperately needed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Stefan, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciated the opportunity to speak with you. Oh, Nick, thank you. It's been lovely meeting you. I hope we can stay in touch. I really enjoyed our talk. Thank you so much okay. for this right. opportunity. Yes, thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 28 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a minute to spare, uh, consider posting a positive review and please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you also hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been releasing episodes weekly and would like to continue doing so. Uh, I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel. Really, I am, Uh, including book reviews, uh, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. But all of that extra content takes a lot of time and work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes my work possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.